Hello and welcome to Back Talk, the show that's a conversation between two feminist people about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch, which means this week I've been sorting through, oh geez, a ton of stuff that um, I didn't do over the break, especially pitches from people for um, the next couple issues of Bitch and other online articles we should run. People are psyched about new TV seasons. I've got a lot of pitches about those to sort through. Right, uh, and I'm Amy Lamb, the associate editor, and we just began production on the 20th anniversary issue of Bitch Magazine. Woo! Party! Yes, that's so <laughs> like huge to think about that Bitch has been around for 20 years. What were you doing 20 years ago? Um, when the first issue of Bitch went to press. I was like, I was a teenager. I was, <laughs> I was nine years old. I would have been in fourth grade I guess yeah learning about the Oregon Trail <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like it's like such a big immense thing to think that like which has been around for so long and I guess this is something that we'll think and talk more about throughout the year like like how so much has changed or has not changed in the past 20 years mm-hmm. yeah so we're putting together our anniversary issue and it's looking to be really awesome and I'm excited about it Okay, well, I wanted to share my favorite piece of pop culture from this week, which is for Christmas, my friend gave me um, six issues of this uh, new comic called Prez, P-R-E-Z. That's about a teenage girl who is elected president. Um, it's really fun and also terrifying. It's kind <laughs> of about, it's one of those, it's it's really near and dear to my heart because it's about a, a very near future that is dystopian and controlled by corporations. Um and they work in lots of like uh, references to like social media and to corporate control into this comic. Um, and basically this person, this, this teenager works at a corn dog shop and a video of her getting her hair stuck in the fryer goes viral. <laughs> and everyone thinks it's so funny that they like joke vote her for president. Oh, wow. And then she's like is actually like actually this is pretty sweet i get to be president <laughs> so check out prez i've i read it and i loved it oh it sounds cool uh my favorite pop culture moment of recent times is actually from the end of last year which was just a couple weeks ago um and it's like it's actually like a oh what's that there's that german word that means like um when you like enjoy us like when somebody else is going through a tough time okay i just googled <laughs> German word enjoy pain and the word you're looking for is schadenfreude the word is literally taken from German and means harm joy (laughs) (laughs) so you were experiencing some harm joy yes I was uh over the holidays which is the perfect time to enjoy harm joy um over the news about um the chocolate brand uh by the mass brothers do you know about them? Oh, the Brooklyn-based Chocolate Brothers, the Mass yeah, Brothers. Yeah, then like they're they're super known for their big, bushy Amish-looking beards and for making bean-to-bar chocolates. And so, uh, my partner, he's a chocolatier and he makes uh, confections. So he's a confectioner, and he also makes chocolates too, like very small batch just for us to enjoy. Like he doesn't have the capacity to. So, make. so you're in deep in the world of chocolate. Yes, and and so there was this huge expose about these like hipster dudes who. Um, who became a huge brand and it's kind of the face of craft bean to bar chocolate um, and they got exposed for like 
the fact that when they started their brand, like they weren't truly bean to bar, and it was such a big story. It was like a really big story for like a week, right around Christmas time, and I loved it. I read every piece of media on it, um, and I think that one of my <laughs> the biggest reasons why I loved it so much is because in the end, this story is is not about like. For, to me, for me, it isn't just about like oh, authentic. What does authenticity mean, or like, um, what's like craftsman? What's the craftsmanship, or anything like that? It's really about the fact that there, there were these two mediocre white guys that like duped an entire industry, um, mainstream wise, because the people in the chocolate industry knew that they weren't, they were like kind of shady, but they duped a bunch of like consumers into thinking that like they were doing good, legit bean to bar chocolates, and it's just like one of those things where it's like how. Like when mediocre white guys have like the bravado to say like we did this, we made this, and and you're gonna buy it. People will just buy it without questioning them. Oh, this this fits so well with the lesson we learned last year. <laughs> my, yes, my my major lesson that I learned in 2015 was present myself with the with with the bravado of a mediocre white guy. Yeah, and they did it, and they were successful. But then this expose, you know, showed that they were they were lying when during like for for their origin story and how they came to be. Um, so for folks who actually buy Mass Brothers chocolates, stop. <laughs> they're not worth it, and there's so many other great chocolate brands out there. The first topic we're talking about this week is Bill Cosby and the news last week that Bill Cosby is actually going to be charged finally with criminal charges in a sexual assault case. This is a case in Pennsylvania and it stems from a 2004 accusation um, that Bill Cosby supplied some sort of sleeping pill or knockout drug um, to a woman along with a glass of wine and then sexually assaulted her on his sofa just this week, so this week, f following up on that, there's the news that uh, Los Angeles's district attorney isn't going to press charges in two other cases. Um, and so Bill Cosby will be heading to court, but only so far on that one charge from 2004 in Pennsylvania. And what's what's your thoughts on this, Amy? Well, so he's going... Um, so what happened was, for the 2004 charge, the woman who pressed those charges... Andrea Constant, I think that's how you say her name. They settled out of court, I guess, in 2006. But because um, they had unsealed some depositions that Bill Cosby had made, where he straight up said that he had supplied multiple women with um, sleeping pills or uh, some kind of depressant uh, in order to engage in sexual activity with them, um, the process, like the district attorney in Pennsylvania where this happened, uh, decided that there was enough evidence to pull up the charges from 2004 um, to actually charge him with that. So there's that that lawsuit. And then there's like this other lawsuit that's happening um, by seven women who, um, who, are, who have accused Bill Cosby of sexual assault as well. They are suing him for defamation of character because they're saying that um, he allowed his representatives to call them liars. And so, of course, Bill Cosby countersued them and said, well, actually, God, you know, geez. yeah. So he's like, so right now in, in the news media, there's they're talking about two different cases. There's, so there's the case about the sexual assault and then there's the case about the defamation, because there's also news recently about um, Camille Cosby, Bill Cosby's wife, um, not testifying in the defamation suit because the, the attorney for the seven women who are suing Bill Cosby want to call her up to the stand as a witness because she has like knowledge about what's happening and she doesn't want to testify. Yikes. Yeah. So it's a lot of stuff's going on and, and, uh, and, and to like separate out what's, who's being sued for what and under what charges it's, it's, there's so much happening. And I think that, 
um, there's just a lot of like, uh, like weirdness about it because he's Bill Cosby and then like, and for many of us who grew up watching his show, it's been difficult to sort of separate, um, Cliff Huxtable from this man who's a predator and to know that like, um, that, I mean, like as journalists, theoretically we're supposed to say like, you know, he allegedly did this, he allegedly did that, you know, we have to use the qualifier allegedly, but like, how can we in good conscience say allegedly anymore when more than 50 women have come forward? Well, the one thing that strikes me about this case is just how long and how much effort it takes to get a sexual assault case to criminal court. You know, that's one thing that happens when people are sexually assaulted. People are always like, why didn't they press charges? Why didn't they take it to court? If they were telling the truth, they would have had it in trial. And this is such a public situation where you can see that there have been over 50 women who have made these kind of accusations against Bill Cosby and only one of them so far now is going to a trial and that's partly because it takes so much effort and because the legal system is so complicated around this that it's it's actually really rare to be able to get a case that um, can actually go to trial and has that happen and that it's super traumatic and complicated for everybody involved here like the woman who made the accusations in 2004, um, now she's back in the headlines again. Now she has to like be on the front page of the newspaper and that it's not like a neutral thing to press charges here. It's not a neutral thing to have to go to court on this. It's incredibly complicated and traumatic. And, and watching this case, I think, I hope it gives everyone a greater understanding of some of the drawbacks of our legal system and how, um, and how messy it can be for for sexual assault cases right because in this case um like this woman she's not she's not the one pressing charges um the district attorney is because they feel like they have new evidence to sort of you know put um bill cosby behind bars i don't know what the what 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 the consequence would be for this but it's because they feel like they found new evidence and and like this woman has like already moved on with her life you know she's doing other things she moved away and then all of a sudden like this is being dredged up and and i think that the one reason why her case is getting um is being at the forefront of this is because in, with her case the statutes of limitations hasn't run out yet it would it would have run out at the beginning of next year mm-hmm. so with all these other cases in in this really weird and fucked up way like it's kind of resting on this case to sort of like mm-hmm. exemplify all the other 50 women who have come forward with um sexual assault charges yeah like in california and one of the cases they're not pursuing it's partly because there's they have a 10-year window after this happens um to pursue the charges and for a lot of these cases this happened so long ago that there's just no way to ever get sort of cr- criminal follow-up on this and to think that um some people call out the women who have come forward to say like, oh, you're just trying to make money off of this or like gain fame. But there's there's literally nothing to gain for these women because they can't press charges because of statutes of limitation. And uh, and all they're getting is vitriol of Cosby supporters. So this is something that's like um, really traumatic for the survivors. And it takes a long time to pursue. Mm-hmm. I just have one more thing to say about this, which is the New York Daily News ran a, a really powerful cover of their newspaper that said, this isn't a he said, she said case. This is a he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, and it repeated it, I think, 50 times on the front page. Um, that's such a powerful statement of both about saying 
but it's also really sad, I think, because it's like if it was just one woman accusing Bill Cosby, why wouldn't we believe that? You know, why why does that not have the same weight as 50 people? Um, and there was a there's a great response, I think, to that on on Shakespeare on the on the blog Shakespeare. Um, where she was saying, you know, even if it was one person accusing Bill Cosby, we should take that really seriously and give that enough weight. And in this case, he's wound, it's wound up becoming a big deal in media and in our, in our culture because there are so many people accusing him. Um, and that's screwed up in its own way, that in order to actually get in trouble for sexual assault, you have to do it 50 times or, you know, and have those people come forward and talk about it. Or if you just do it once, people might not ever believe that person because it's just one person. And and even after all these women have come forward, there are still people who are skeptical because, you know, it's difficult to see Bill Cosby as a predator. Um, and then there's also this like really misogynistic undertone there where it's like, who is to believe all of these women mm-hmm. with nothing to gain by coming forward? Yeah. Okay, so our second topic of uh, screwed up legal system <laughs> of the week. Ah, <laughs> uh, geez, uh, I'm sorry about America. Is uh, uh, there was it's the non-indictment in the case of Tamir Rice, who, um, of course, Tamir Rice is the 12-year-old boy who was shot and killed by Cleveland police officers last year, and just this last week. Um, it's no big surprise that none of the officers in the case are going to be indicted. Um, Tamir Rice's mother spoke out about the non-indictment um, on a TV station called TV One, the show News One Now. Uh, let's listen to a clip from her. I had a hopeful um, feeling that he was due, due to, um, it was surveillance tape and Tamir was so young. Um, I was hoping that, you know, things could have been different. What struck me about that interview is just her saying that the whole legal system here is is screwed up and that something that we should really be thinking about moving forward from this and other horrible shootings like this is to really rethink how the legal system works around um, officer-involved shootings. There was a really good article that touched on the same thing in The New Republic by the writer Jamil Smith, who hosts the podcast The Intersection. Um, And... Jamil wrote about the Tamir Rice decision being a breaking point in how we deal with prosecutions of officer-involved shootings. And that one of the problems here is that um, the prosecutor in this case recommended that they not file any charges. So the person who was supposed to be responsible for prosecuting the officers said, you know what, we shouldn't indict these officers. And that certainly swayed the grand jury in this case. And so Jamil Smith... um, in this article in the New Republic said, right now, Clevelanders and many others across the nation are stuck with local justice systems that allow police violence to continue unabated and without consequence. And I think, you know, so often in 2015, we saw cases like this and a lot of people just want to like throw up their hands and be like, well, that's just the way the system is. And I think it's important to say that's not the way that it has to be or should be. We should be fixing this. Right. I mean, but like, but the most awful part about this notion that like we should be fixing the system is that in a way the system is working the way it was created to work yeah and it's to protect the powerful people and in this case it's law enforcement i mean like tamir rice the officers who murdered tamir, tamir rice they they had they're not being indicted so they're not even like being brought to trial to, to see if they did any wrongdoing same thing with sandra bland and the, the and like the people who were in charge of her when she was arrested for not um 
using her blinker when she changed lanes. And like Eric Garner was murdered and it was captured on film. And the officer involved in that did not receive an indictment. Um, like Darren Wilson, who killed Mike Brown, nothing. So it's like, in, in a way, it's it's just like, it's unsurprising and so heartbreaking. It makes you just want to like, just cry. I don't really know like what other emotion well, you know, I feel that like, could like process here. In 2015 was a year that we saw a lot of like widespread national outrage about these about these crimes and these deaths is 2016 or is any year in the future the year that we actually change the system that lets people get off for them i mean what's interesting is that piece that you talk about in the new republic i hope i'm getting the numbers right they said that um in 2015 there were 15 cases where uh, police officers were indicted, right? Oh, it's actually 18. 18. And then, um, but in the 20-something years prior, how many cases was it? 54. 54 cases in the... In, in the past 10 years. Yeah. I'll just read that. It says, per, per the Washington Post's count, 18 officers have been charged with crimes related to officer-involved shootings in 2015. And that's 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 worthy of note because only 54 were indicted in the prior 10 years. Right. So, like, so... Yes, it's like more law enforcement are being indicted, but we have to understand that like um, officer involved shootings or where law enforcement are, you know, killing people, it's nothing new. It's not new at all. And it's been happening for a really long time. And, and in a way, it's only getting more heat on it because um, more people have access to like uh, video cameras so that we can see it happening. But this is a system that's been in place for a really, really long time. And, and it's it's used to not protect the people who don't have the resources to like fight them and it's just really heartbreaking and um and and actually i want to tie this in with uh, this netflix series that's that like um came onto netflix over the holidays it's called making a murderer everyone is obsessed with yes, this show it's super fucking addictive <laughs> i watched the whole thing over christmas break which is like, like the worst thing merry, to watch <laughs> merry christmas i'm watching making making a murderer making a murderer and uh it is it is like the thing about that show is that um it really gives you deep insight into how like it doesn't take like an entire police force to cover up for one another it takes like one or two fucked up police officers to do something and then the rest to not do something to like call them out on it in a way i mean when you watch this like uh, i i am like not an attorney i'm nowhere near uh like literate in terms of like like law and things like that i mean you can just tell by just the way i said that but <laughs> um but you can just watch it you just see like how um there's such like a mishandling of justice and how the system worked for the people involved and and you mean for the police officers for like for the people who the police officers set up mm. or like um put up so that like they would be in trouble so it just took a couple police officers to work the system to make this guy go to jail right. even if there wasn't that much evidence against him right so the show is about this man his name is Stephen avery and it's not really a spoiler alert because what happens is he first um he somehow like pisses off somebody who knows somebody in the police in the county sheriff's department and for that reason they kind of he has kind of has a target on his back and he's like this um working class white guy right and then through trumped up charges, he gets sent away to prison for 18 years on a rape charge that he didn't commit. And he only gets freed because of like um, newly found DNA evidence in like um, the late 90s or 2000. And then he sues the, the county sheriff department for setting him up. And in the midst of suing them, um, he gets uh, charged with murder. 
And so the Making a Murder series is following like his trial. And to get roped into this is that like he has a, a nephew named Brendan Dassey who was completely innocent and got coerced into giving this like this confession. And this kid, this poor fucking kid, is has been in prison for I don't know how fucking long now, but he does not deserve to be there at all, period. Like I can't say for sure that Stephen Avery didn't commit the murder, like, but there is enough evidence to say that he has reasonable about reasonable doubt on his side. So the thing about while I was watching this and connecting it with like uh, these recent cases of um, mostly black folks, unarmed black folks who are getting killed by law enforcement, is that like in a in a story like Making a Murderer or even in a story like um, the first season of Serial, there's like this really um, humanizing effect of the people who are like in trouble and. Uh, who who have cases where they're in prison now but there's enough reasonable doubt where they really really shouldn't be in prison right like like we learn all about the life and the history of the person who's at the center of the story and we really start to empathize with them and see them as a real person rather than as how the prosecution or the law enforcement wants to see them which is just as an inmate right exactly and you know and we learn all about Stephen Avery we learned about his parents and and like um, his sisters his brothers his life and when we learn about Anand Saeed and his parents and his family and his upbringing you know we become very empathetic to these folks um, which which drives the narrative but like in cases like this with Tamir Rice with Sandra Bland with Mike Brown with um, Eric Garner like where are these Big, first of all, where are these big investigative, like in-depth, um, months-long, year-long documentaries about their stories, where we can seek justice for them? Uh, and secondly, like in mainstream coverage, like we don't hear stories about like who Tamir Rice was as a little boy. Uh, we don't we don't hear about like who Sandra Bland was and how she just she literally just got a new job when she got pulled over and like had no reason for to commit suicide or like who Eric Garner was and and his life before you know he was like choked to death you know like we're not getting these so then you know when you're when we watch Making a Murderer I can it was riveting it's so good it's amazing beautiful like television and it's like so well done documentarians who were two women who put this together like kudos to that they did an amazing job but like where are these stories for these folks? Um, I think that's something that we have to think about when we're watching these other stories because Stephen Avery, the man at the center of Making a Murderer, he has these he has a petition out on change.org with more than 300,000 signatures asking for like another trial because they feel like he got an unjust shake at things, right? Like where's the outrage and like the mobilization to get justice for Tamir Rice, for Sandra Bland, for Eric Garner, for Mike Brown? Like we, we see that on like a you know, from folks in the Black Lives Matter movement. And for those folks, it's like they get like villainized in mainstream media. So I just feel like when we watch like these really compelling stories and serials like Serial and uh, Making a Murderer, we also have to think about like who's not getting their story shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope that I think the message hopefully people take away from from ma- Making a Murderer is not just the question of, oh, is this guy guilty or not? But let's look at the system and how this system worked to send people to prison with un- unscrupulous ev- evidence and with connections to the police that might have set them up. Right. And so I hope that what people take away from shows like that and discussions of, in a show like Serial is let's think more about the systems at play here and not the individual question of like just this one guy. Because for every just this one guy, there's thousands of other people who are probably in this in similar situations and are getting um, unfair trials or not actually getting justice through the justice system. Right. It's like who's being protected 
and and when you watch making a murderer you can see that like considerable effort is goes into protecting those who are in power and it it it, it does like pull back the veil but like who are we pulling the back the veil for and for whose benefit you know what i want to ask you is oh, if you had any uh new year's resolutions since this is our this is our first uh podcast of the new year oh um yeah i'm trying to save up like ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars i've been reading all these articles about people living paycheck to paycheck and i'm like oh wait that's me <laughs> <laughs> and um i actually don't have like much saved uh so i've been using this little um uh here's a helpful tip uh besides try not to eat out constantly and make food myself um i've been using this little website called acorns that rounds up every sale every time i use my debit card or credit card it rounds it up um, and saves that money and actually invests it in the stock market in some way. I know, right? This is one of those things where I'm like, I bet rich people are way better at saving money than people who don't have any money because they have like financial advisors and like investment opportunities and stuff. And so this is my tiny small way of like investing. Cool. Yeah. What, what do, you, do you have any resolution? Uh, well, I shared one with you that I had a few years ago, which was like, I, was trying not to fall down as much because I'm a huge klutz. <laughs> Don't fall down yeah. as much in 2016. <laughs> well, no, that's not my New Year's resolution for this year. Um, I was thinking about it and I realized that this is a really silly one. I'm going to... Okay, so oftentimes when I take photographs like or have photographs taken of me, I'm very smiley, like T- like teethy mm-hmm. smile i don't know yeah. i know i know the teethy smile yeah. you're talking about yeah <laughs> look at our look at bitch media's instagram you'll see <laughs> amy's toothy smile yeah. over it so yeah. i realized i need to um be friends with my non teethy smile face oh get serious photos yes i are like because like i think that when i smile without my teeth i kind of look funny so actually i just need to like be more used to my resting bitch faced um, and be more comfortable with it because i think that like i look too scowly but like who the fuck cares so I, 2016 <laughs> get okay with your resting bitch face yes um, i mean i'm okay with it like in my everyday life but i mean like in terms of like being documented like in uh, photographs yeah. i'm mm-hmm. gonna not smile as much you know what we should do hmm. i'll take a photo of you not smiling with your resting bitch yeah. face and i'll put it up on <laughs> Uh, this podcast on our website and on Bitch's Instagram. Okay, cool. how's that from making you act on your news? Yeah, I'm gonna do it because like I'm I because I really I was scrolling through my pics and I was just thinking like man I, why am I smiling? I'm not like that happy all the time. Why am I smiling? Like literally the second you pull out the camera, I'm like just it's a reflex I have and I need to I don't know I just feel this compulsion to not do that. Okay, well if you're listening to this, check out our Instagram feed and check out this <laughs> on our fa- on our website to see Amy not smiling. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so at the end of the show, we share one thing we heard, one thing we read, and one thing we saw in the past week. Oh my God, I'll start out with Saw because I saw so many movies yes. over this winter break. Um, I saw Spotlight, I saw The Big Short, I saw Carol, um, I saw Star Wars. Um, I think the movie I want to talk about, I was going to talk about Star Wars, but you know what? Everybody's already talked about Star Wars. I want to give a shout out to Carol, um, the film that stars Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara as. Uh, two women in the 1950s uh, who fall in love with each other. And this film just feels oppressive. You know, I watched that film and I, at the end I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I was not born in the 1950s and didn't have to go through any of that situation. Um, 
it's a it's a really beautifully made film, I think, and it just it's a subtle film that makes you really feel the pain um, of these two women being in love with each other and all the ways that their culture and their society is working to is working against them in that regard and trying to force them to be people who they're not. So I recommend going to see Carol in theaters if you can. Cool. Um, I read a really great piece um, in the New Yorker. Uh, it's about Leslie Jones, who's a cast member on um, Saturday Night Live, and she's going to be one of the four Ghostbusters in the reboot. Woohoo! Yeah, so I don't know that much about her, uh, and this piece is called Ready for Prime Time by Andrew Morantz, and it's about how she's been a road comic for 25 years, and now she's finally earning like mainstream success, and uh, she's super funny, and actually in reading this piece, because it covers some of like her, her jokes from the past, um, I, I wanted to see those jokes that this piece referenced, and I tried to Google or find them on YouTube and I couldn't but like there were a handful of times where I lol'd while reading this just because like the way the writer talked about Leslie or like just quotes from Leslie as she's like because I guess the writer followed her around and everything she's super funny and it's like it's just really great to finally see somebody who you feel like um you know has put in the time and the work and is finally getting recognition and is like is like a legit funny person and can't wait to like I was kind of iffy about the Ghostbusters reboot but for some reason reading about Leslie Jones being in it made me like excited to see it and to see her in it great yeah so check out this piece it's in the New Yorker it's online um it's super funny please read <laughs> <laughs> all right we're ending the show with a song what, what song did you want to share yeah so I wanted to share um a song by this band called Charlie Bell um I guess they used to be a trio but now they're a duo of um teenage brother and sister oh yeah they're so adorable i couldn't i like i was like i love teenage fans <laughs> yeah so the brother who plays drums um his name is giassi bonds and the sister um plays guitar and sings and her name is jindai bonds and uh the brother is a freshman in high school and the sister's a, a senior in high school hey. yeah and they're so adorable and um i i heard an interview of them um on npr where the little brother gushes about his big sister's songwriting. I think it was in seventh grade. We had to pick a song and like get the lyrics from the song and really like annotate the lyrics. And I chose one of my sister's songs and really reading the stuff that she says. It's like beautiful. And so I'm just really excited to share this song by them off their most recent EP. The song is called Petting Zoo. Cool. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Thank you. Happy 2016. I can take it. I Hey, podcast listeners, have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. 
If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org slash podcast. And be sure to mention Propaganda or Backtalk when you donate. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Thanks so much. Knows me like I do.